0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The Oregon Caves, located about 70 miles northeast of Crescent City, California, and the Oregon Caves National Monument, are a place full of interest, mystery, and history. The Oregon Caves were located by people of European ancestry in approximately 1874, when a 24-year-old hunter named... Elijah Davidson found himself in total blackness in the cave. He was chasing his dog, Bruno, who in turn was pursuing the bear. One following the other, the dog and the bear, entered a dark hole on a high mountainside. Davidson stopped at the mysterious dark entrance. He could see nothing, but an agonizing howl pulled him into the cave to save his dog. When the matches were gone, he was in total darkness. He was able to wade down a gurgling ice-cold stream and find his way back into daylight. He also found his dog. In 1907, the poet Joaquin Miller visited the caves and wrote The Marble Halls of Oregon. The ensuing publicity eventually resulted in President William Howard Taft proclaiming a tract of 480 acres as the Oregon Caves National Monument in 1909. In 1922, an automobile road reached the park, and 12 years later, a six-story hotel, the Chateau, was constructed. The Chateau still stands and is a unique place to visit, in addition to what one would see at the Oregon Caves. In 1934, the Oregon Caves National Monument was transferred from the Forest Service to the National Park Service, which still administers it. The Oregon Caves are unique possibly due to the fact that it is one of the few cave systems located on tectonically active ground, known as a subduction zone. Their uniqueness may also be due to the fact that an old-growth Douglas fir forest grows directly above the caves, or the fact that they were created from what used to be a tropical reef that was pushed about 12 miles below the surface of the earth and then brought back up to its present location of approximately 4,000 feet and is still rising. I visited the Oregon Caves in the spring of 2006 and knew at once it would be a first-time and unique experience. I spoke with Roger Brandt, the Manager of Visitor Services and Visitor Education of the Oregon Caves, in the summer of 2006, about the caves. We began when I asked him about the Oregon Caves and what they represent.
1: Oregon Caves is part of a much larger regional story. I think a lot of people come here and uh, uh, expect to see... Uh, something that might be like uh, other caves around the nation, but it's really a unique cave system. It sits up on top of a mountain, uh, the Siskiyou Mountain Range, and uh, it's primarily made up of marble uh, with a stream that comes out of it that feeds into uh, one of the few remaining watersheds with no obstruction to salmon migration. Uh, Above the cave is uh, one of the few remaining old-growth Douglas Fir force. And when visitors arrive, they arrive into a historic district with rock work uh, created by the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, back in the 1930s and a historic lodge that's in the National Register of Historic Landmarks.
0: How is it different uh, geologically from other caves?
1: Most other caves around the nation are sitting on a tectonically inactive region. There's, there's not much in the way of uplift or, uh, you know, earthquake movement or that kind of thing. We're, we're sitting on top of what's called a subduction zone. So there's an ocean crust that goes underneath us. Uh, It melts to create the cascade volcanoes inland. And the result of all this movement uh, contributes to the uplift of our region. Uh, What's really interesting about Oregon Caves is that it was at one time an ocean, tropical ocean reef, uh, back during the Jurassic period uh, when dinosaurs roamed the Earth. And that tropical reef was pushed underneath the continental edge, uh, buried to a depth of about 12 miles, and then over time was uplifted to where we now find it 4,000 feet above sea level at the crest of the Cascade or of the Siskiyou Mountains.
0: Is that geological um, movement still active?
1: The geologic lift around Oregon Caves is still active. Right now, the ocean crust is passing underneath where I'm sitting about 20, not 20 miles below me. At that point, the rocks are very flexible, uh, more like uh, warm taffy. They tend to Flex and bend uh, rather than break and shatter. And real activity, or uh, regional earthquake activity, is happening uh, out uh, along the coast or out further in the ocean.
0: When you say uh, it's passing underneath where you're, where you are now, what do you mean passing? Is it actually moving?
1: Yes. Uh, the estimated rate of movement is about six millimeters per year. Uh, That results in about two millimeters of uplift where I'm sitting at. And so Oregon Caves is in a constant state of uplift. And of course, uh, if that was happening uh, without the help of erosion to control it, we'd have mountains the size of uh, Mount Everest and the Alps. But we're in a very uh, wet region, and uh, a lot of rainfall here during the wintertime, and that all contributes to eroding things down about as fast as they lift up.
0: Tell us about the caves themselves. What would someone see when they arrive there?
1: When you arrive, uh, it's a lot of people, the first question they ask is, where is the cave? And most people think that the first thing they're going to do is uh, go into a whole Maybe climb down on a ladder and go down into the ground, but really uh, where we start at is at the foot of a little mountain called Mount Elijah, and you actually go into the lowest part of the cave, walking in just like you would uh, into your house. Uh, and you uh, basically from there climb up a series of stairs and ladders up to uh, an elevation gain of about 230 feet to the exit point.
0: And what do you see along the walk within the caves is about a kilometer in length?
1: Yeah, the entire cave system is uh, about three miles in length. I guess that would be about six kilometers. And the hike or the walk that we do through the caves about one kilometer in length, half a mile. And on the way, uh, you you start out following a small stream. It's called Caves Creek. They weren't too creative with names in those days. It was water came out of cave, so they called it Cave Creek. And you follow that in to where it has excavated through this m- block of marble rock. Uh, series of passageways and uh, we follow that for a distance and eventually turn away from that uh, because over time the stream has been cutting its way down into these rocks so as you go in you uh, climb up into older and older channels that were cut out uh, longer and longer ago uh, some estimates up to about a million years for some of the older passageways uh, which were at that time the stream channel, and uh, on the way you uh, pass through um, you know some low spots and some narrow spots, Not, nowhere where you have to get down and crawl, but you you follow a nice uh, pathway. Um, past cave formations where where you can feel the natural winds blowing through the cave or maybe see some of the cave-adapted life that uh, is one of the hallmark features of our cave.
0: Tell us about that cave-adapted life.
1: Because we're an isolated cave system sitting up on the crest of a mountain, uh, any of the creatures that uh, went into the cave and were able to adapt to the cave environment are adapted to live in and only in Oregon Caves. So they're uh, endemic to that particular cave system. And this is unlike what you might find, say, in uh, Kentucky, like the Mammoth Cave Systems or in the Dakotas. With the wind cave, and those cave systems are basically networked through small passageways. We humans couldn't crawl through, but a small insect or um, other cave adapted creature could go through those passageways and they can interact with other cave systems around the region. Here, there's no interaction with other cave systems because there's no known connection to any other cave system. It's an isolated system, sits out there by itself and the creatures that live in that system are adapted to living in and only in that system and there's really no interaction anywhere else. They they're pretty much sit up there by themselves.
0: What kind of creatures are they?
1: Well, they're not very spectacular that's for sure. They're uh, mostly insects adapted to the cave system. Uh, There's not much food in the cave, so uh, they're not very spectacular. They're small, uh, inconspicuous. You have to look for them pretty hard to find them. Probably the most interesting insect that we have in there is one called a gorilla-bladded and that's a kind of a, a name that's put together using two scientific terms one grillo meaning cricket and blatted, meaning cockroach so it's a, it's a family all of its own but they kind of uh, resemble crickets or cockroaches and they're a predatory insect that uh, requires a very cool environment uh, they can be found in other parts of the world up in glaciers and uh, high mountain ranges and other caves like the Ape Caves up in um, uh, Mount St. Helens. Uh, But this uh, is actually a relic of the Ice Age. Uh, They thrived here when there were glaciers and cooler temperatures and uh, they were able to seek refuge in the cave and adapt to the cave environment and they basically live in that cave system, hunting for cave-adapted insects or even most likely insects that get sucked into the cave by the natural winds, and uh, that becomes uh, dinner for these guys.
0: Within the caves, it's totally dark. I remember being there, and uh, the guide shut off all the lights, and uh, it's absolutely black. How does that affect the flora and fauna within the caves? They've obviously adapted to it
1: right, under normal uh, conditions, you wouldn't have flora per se. You'd have fungi, I guess if uh, somebody looks at a mushroom as flora you um, you know you do have fungi that naturally grow in the cave uh, from the debris that might uh, blow in um, you know dust and pollen and spores in the wind or come in. Uh, with the water that comes down and carries stuff from you know the forest floor into the cave, but generally uh, the only reason that there's any kind of floor in there right now is because of the lights that have been put into the cave. So the lights tend to change the cave environment dramatically. Uh, there was a time when uh, former managers back in the 40s and the 50s used to leave the lights on all day sometimes all night and they had uh, trees small trees that would sprout inside of the cave and strawberry plants growing in there and a few other uh, things that would grow in there because you know it's just like a little terrarium had plenty of water and uh, soils and a little bit of light and it had all the ingredients that it needed to uh, you know for flora to grow in there but uh, we have a policy of uh, turning out the lights behind us. We, actually, the cave system is set up with a set of lights that uh, you go through one section of the cave with the lights on and then you turn that off behind you and then turn the next set on in front of you, kind of like going from one room of the house to the other. And when you leave the room, you turn the lights out behind you and that keeps the cave in its natural darkness as much as we can.
0: You also have airlock doors um, at various points within the cave. Can you explain why and what you uh, hope to achieve with those?
1: I think one of the things to realize about Oregon Caves is the natural winds that blow through it is a unique feature. Uh, Not many caves have the attributes that allow for these natural winds to go through them. And for that reason, the wind is very important to the ecology of cave adapted life, as well as bats that hibernate in that cave. It's actually critical uh, that we retain that wind direction so it goes in the direction that is predictable for these animals so they can find their food in the predictable places or they can find uh, roosting and refuges in. Places that are not going to threaten them by, say, freezing if the uh, direction of the or the temperatures change outside dramatically and cause, uh, you know, cooling inside of the cave. And years ago, um, back in the 30s to be more exact, uh, there were two tunnels that were drilled into the cave to make it easier for people to walk from one part of the cave to another. It was. The purpose of that was you know, to make it a better tour cave, and when they did that, that opened up an avenue that dramatically changed the natural directions that the wind blew through the cave, and to prevent that wind from going down these tunnels and actually uh, changing not only the direction but the volume of air that goes through the cave, which had a, a variety of other uh, negative consequences, uh, they Put in a airlock door in the two tunnels, and that basically just prevents the wind from blowing in there, unless somebody you know opens the door briefly for to let a tour group through.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Roger Brandt, the manager of Visitor Services and Education at the Oregon Caves National Monument in the southwest corner of the state of Oregon, about 20 miles off the main highway at the end of a a narrow, windy road in the Siskiyou National Forest. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Roger... The location of the caves in relationship to the larger geographic area in the Siskiyou Forest, the Redwood National Park, and Crater Lake is very diverse. Can you tell us about the diversity and how it occurred?
1: Well, our posi- uh, you actually brought up a really good point that uh, we are in a position between two internationally significant uh, national park areas redwood national park and crater lake we're in a um, mountain range which some people on a map might say well that's the coastal range but geologically it's really a very unique um ecologic and geologic region called the Siskiyou mountains uh, on our side of the border, the Cali- or the Oregon side, it's the Siskiyou Mountains. On the California side, it's called the Klamath Mountains, and they extend from about where I'm sitting now down to um, Redding, California. And within that region is uh, the rubble of a tremendous and long history of of collision between the ocean crust and the continent and kind of like a bulldozer bulldozing up things in front of it. The the continental edges bulldozed up pieces and fragments of the ocean crust at all levels, everything from the sediment on the top all the way down into pieces and fragments of the upper mantle. And all of these rocks have different attributes. Some rocks are very good for growing plants. Other ones have uh, minerals and nutrients that actually restrict plant growth or, or constrain the kind of plants that can grow on them. And all of that diversity, these different types of plant communities are all found within the region around Oregon Caves. Now that's something that... Crater Lake and Redwood National Park do, do not have. They do not have this uh, vast and significant diversity. And Oregon Cave sits in the uh, one portion of this larger geologic and ecologic story. And it's a good place to uh, start if you want to learn more about uh, the region, uh, both the geologic uh, aspects and The ecologic, like the old-growth Douglas Fir Forest. Um, And it's a a good place to launch if you want to go out and see our wild and scenic rivers or you want to hike any of the three wilderness areas in our area here or uh, enjoy the history of the region as well.
0: Roger over the uh, 14 plus years that you've been working as the manager of visitor services and education at the Oregon Caves, I imagine you've met hundreds and, or if not thousands, of people. Do any one uh, or uh, several of those people stand out in your experience?
1: Uh, I've got an opportunity to meet. Uh, many interesting people, that's for certain, Uh, and all of the people that come there are are great. They're out enjoying uh, their experiences by visiting national parks. But I think that one of the most interesting things that happened, actually what, or at least the most interesting people that might have come to that monument in history, uh, actually came way before my time. It was uh, 1938, and uh, they went on the tour, uh, one on one tour and one on the other. And uh, the first guy was carrying this special set of, of cameras. It was two cameras, and he was taking stereo pictures. And I know you've seen these stereo pictures before where you uh, put two pictures side by side and you hold up a little viewer to your eyes and you look through it like, a, like looking through a pair of binoculars and you can see a three-dimensional picture. And while he was taking his picture, another guy came out. He was the manager of the Sawyer uh, postcard company up in Portland. And he started asking questions of this young man, what he was doing. And the young man said, well, I'm using this new uh, slide film and I'm taking pictures, stereo pictures, but I want to I got this idea for an invention that... Uh, You can uh, feel like when you look at these pictures that you're standing in the photo itself, not that you're standing at that scene rather than outside looking in, that you're standing in it looking at the scene directly as if you were there. And the man uh, was very interested in this, and they decided to meet that night at the Oregon Caves Chateau or the Lodge and the young man explained his invention, and what he was explaining to the man turned out to be uh, what we know today as the Viewmaster. And I know everybody's probably held one of these in their hands. It's, uh, I, it was popular in my day. I still have a collection of Viewmasters from when I was a kid. And they drew up the plans for the Viewmaster and the preliminary agreement for production in the Oregon Caves Lodge. And in the history books, the Oregon Caves is known as the home of the viewmaster.
0: Well, Roger Brandt, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately?
1: Well, m- interesting book that I read lately was actually written by one of our local residents, Ruth Pfefferly, and she she uh, has since passed away, but she was quite a uh, avid historian, and uh, as a homemaker, she dedicated her life to her family. In the spare time she had, she dedicated to uh, typing out as much history as she could about the region and produced this uh, book in a very uh, home-style manner uh, called Golden Days and Golden Ways their husband's name was Fayo, P H A Y O, which yeah. was uh, German. Yeah. They uh, yeah, they homesteaded or their family homesteaded here and so they had deep deep roots, but um uh, they were the probably I mean they were way way ahead of their time. They knew a lot of the uh Chinese Americans who had been in this region um you know one of them, uh, the, his name was China Bo and he <clears throat> he was one of the first packers here in the 1850s and uh and he packed all over this region up till he finally retired but they knew him and and uh, when he died he was he entrusted them with his body and they buried it in a place because so they didn't want to go back to China and they were at that time they were uh, you know they were tongs Mm-hmm. that were taking bodies of people's remains and shipping them back to china and so he wanted his body hidden and so uh Fale and ruth were the only ones i guess there was a couple other people and they to this day they won't tell him or you know there's no record of where he was buried they they put him in a place a special place and but uh, nobody really knows for sure so they had a really interesting connection with you know Diversity long before it was in vogue to you know uh, foster that kind of uh, you know care for culture yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And it is an interesting yeah. story, and they were quite a bit ahead of their time. They were talking about uh, diversity. They were one of the few people that uh, documented much of the chinese American history during the mining years in the 1850s. And a lot of uh, homespun, down-to-earth stories that give you a really interesting peek into the local culture, as well as tell you quite a bit about Oregon Caves and the people who played a role in making what it is that you see today when you visit.
0: Well, Roger Brandt, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Mary, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to you again sometime.
0: Roger Brandt is the manager of Visitor Services and Education at the Oregon Caves, located about 70 miles northeast of Crescent City, California, in southwestern Oregon at the Oregon Caves National Monument, a place full of interest, mystery, and history. The book that Roger Brandt recommends is Golden Days and Pioneer Ways by Ruth Pfefferle. This interview from the archives of Radio Curious was recorded in June 2006. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California. 95482 or by phone 707-462-6541 You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onested is our associate producer and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.